John 21 in your Bibles. This is the final message in our John series. The John series began a long time ago. Uh, midpoint of last year, we've been preaching it on Sunday evenings. If you have not been here on Sunday evenings, I've had a couple of two-part messages, a smattering of John and Sunday mornings from time to time. Well, this is it. This is the last message. Next week, we're jumping into Ezekiel. We are finishing John this week. We've walked through all 21 chapters over the the course of several weeks. And I'm excited to be um, looking at the end of this. I'm excited to be finished with one thing and moving on to something new. If you haven't listened to the series, again, it's all online, LegacyBaptistChurch.net. I encourage you to uh, spend some time looking through that series as it has been um, supremely edifying to all of us, I believe. We come to the final account of Jesus Christ in the book of John today. It's worth noting that this is not the final moments. John, in the epistle of John, does not give us the final moments of Jesus' time on earth. The scriptures reveal several events that followed the end of the epistle of John in the life of Christ. At the end of the sermon today, we'll briefly recap some of those final elements of Jesus Christ's life, though they aren't in the book of John. We'll recap what the other Gospels tell us, including the book of Acts as well, about what happened, what the interaction between the disciples and Jesus Christ following John 21, and then certainly finishing with the ascension of Christ into heaven. When we last left the disciples, they were in the upper room. It was eight days following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or perhaps the crucifixion. We were debating as to whether the eight days was after the resurrection, after the crucifixion. The scriptures aren't entirely clear. But we know that on that day, on the day Jesus Christ rose from the dead, He had appeared to Mary. He had appeared to Simon. He had appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And that evening, He had appeared to ten of the disciples who were locked in an upper room for fear of the Jews. Eight days later, Jesus appeared to the eleven disciples. The conspicuous absence was of Judas Iscariot, who had killed himself after betraying Jesus Christ. Now all eleven, Thomas, also called Didymus, was in the room as well this time. He appeared to them again. We talked about that last time in John 20. According to Matthew 28, verse 7, the angel which appeared to Mary at the sepulcher on the day of Christ's resurrection told her to tell the disciples that Jesus would go before them into Galilee. Now, we know that Jerusalem was not in Galilee, it was in Judea. We have, if we're looking at a map, you can turn to the back of your Bible if you want, we have Judea, Jerusalem is in Judea. Above Judea, we have Samaria. And then above Samaria, we have the region of Galilee. Now, the Israelites, a true Jew, did not claim Samaria. Samaritans were outcasts. They called them dogs. But Galilee was a part of Israel, split there by the nation of Samaria. And Jesus Christ said that He would go before them into Galilee. And so we understand immediately that in the disciples' minds would have been the expectation that they needed to go to Galilee. But eight days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they're still in Jerusalem. Why would that be? Well, if you recall why they would have been in Jerusalem to begin with, it was Passover. Passover would have been followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover on the 14th day of the first month. Feast of Unleavened Bread, the seven days afterwards, the 15th through the 21st of the first month of the year. 
And so they needed to stay in Jerusalem for at least eight days to observe this feast that the law of Moses commanded every Jewish man to be in Jerusalem to partake of. So they stayed there. They finished their feast. And when the feast was over, the disciples made their journey at some point from Jerusalem to Galilee. And they did so with the expectation of seeing Jesus. Look with me in verse 1 of John 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. On this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. Now it has been often remarked in this passage that Peter is doing something wrong here. And I think that we'll see as the passage fleshes out that perhaps this wasn't the best idea, that, that perhaps Peter was indeed falling back a little bit here as he said, I go a fishing. But I don't think we should give Peter as hard a time as perhaps we might have been tempted to do based upon maybe messages we've heard in the past. Peter and his disciples, or these disciples, were indeed going back to something that they had done before. But were they really denying the call that Jesus Christ had placed upon them? When Jesus saw them in the upper room, He said, as, the, as God hath sent me, so send I you. He has called them. He has sent them. So what's happening here? Well, when we understand in Matthew 28, verse 7, that they were told that Jesus Christ would go to Galilee before them, that means they knew that they were going into Galilee. And they weren't just going there to go a-fishing. They were going to Galilee because Jesus Christ said He'd be in Galilee. But when they got to Galilee, they didn't know what to do. What to do next? They were waiting. They were not yet empowered with the Holy Spirit. They had not yet received that which was necessary for full ministry. We talked about Jesus Christ breathing on them in John 20. Perhaps that was the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but we know for sure that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of power for ministry would not happen until the day of Pentecost. Fifty days after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Ten days after the ascension of Jesus on the hill of Bethany. And so if we understand all of these things, then we also recognize that they perhaps were still in fear. They were still anguished. They were still unknowns. What were they to do? How should they proceed? So Peter said, I go a-fishing. Of all of the Gospel writers, John's Gospel has the most focused account, as we recall, of Peter's failure. We even spent an entire message focusing on the failure, the denial of Peter during the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. How he three times denied even knowing Jesus Christ. We recall that Peter had told Jesus without reservation that he would never forsake him. He told Jesus Christ, I will give my life for your sake. Well, Peter not only forsook Christ, he denied him three times. We must keep that in our minds as we enter into John 21 because John is not going to leave the story unended. And the story did not end with Peter's failure. And we're going to look at that a little bit today as well as we continue through John 21. So they went fishing. They were in Galilee. They were waiting. And they went fishing. However, these men were now disciples, chosen disciples of Jesus Christ. 
That means their actions. And this is what it means to be a disciple. You call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, they were disciples of Jesus Christ. And what it means is their actions were not to be for themselves, they were to be for Christ. Their provision was no longer to come from themselves, it was to come from Christ. Their priorities no longer rested upon themselves, their priorities rested upon Christ. Their abilities were no longer rooted in themselves, their abilities were rooted in Christ. And Jesus was going to use the circumstance of them going fishing to teach them a lesson about what it means to be a disciple. Now as we learn these facts in connection with the disciples, and then particularly as we learn these facts in connection with Peter, I'd like to make an appeal to each one of us sitting in the room today, as well as those listening over the internet. I don't know exactly what God has done or what He is doing in your life. I don't know your spiritual successes and I do not know the spiritual failures that you have endured. But I know my own story. I know a story of many years of failure, of many years of rebellion, of running, of denying the claim of God upon my life. I don't know if you are running from where you should be. I don't know if you are where you should be, or if you just plain don't know where you ought to be. But I know who God is. The Scriptures teach us who God is. And the Scriptures teach us what we ought to be. Even in those times where we don't exactly know where we ought to be. So I ask you a question today. What is it that would distract you from serving God completely? Is there anything in your life that is keeping you, that is hindering you, that is withholding from you complete sacrificial yielding to God? Perhaps there in your seats as we begin this message this morning, you should pray the prayer that the psalmist prayed in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and try my heart. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. In our opening prayer this morning, I asked, I prayed to God that He would make our hearts receptive to the Word of God. See, we are all in a different place, but we are all going in the same direction if we're born again believers in this room. And God has a place for us to get to, and it's a place of complete yieldedness, of sacrificial yieldedness to the will of God in our lives. What is keeping you What is hindering you from sacrificial yieldedness to God? What is hindering you from selling out? What's holding you back? Let's ask the question this morning. We're going to do it through four points. Only two this morning, two this evening. First point in verses 1 through 14 of John 21. What is keeping you from completely yielding to God? Is it your abilities? Is it your abilities that are keeping you from completely yielding to God? I've read the first... Two and a half verses. Let's um, pick up in verse 3 and read through verse 14. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We go, we also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. He said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast, therefore, 
And now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. And Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of great fishes, and hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them, and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to the disciples after that he was risen from the dead. What is keeping you from completely yielding yourself to God? Is it your abilities? There were seven disciples that went fishing that day. These were experienced fishermen who, according to verse 3, fished all night and caught nothing. Well, morning dawned, according to verse 4, and the men were still busy throwing their nets into the sea seeking some fish. On the the shore stood Jesus. However, Scriptures tell us the disciples did not know it was Him. Following Jesus Christ's resurrection, we see rather frequently this to be the case, where Jesus Christ is in the appearance of those who knew Him and who loved Him, and yet they did not recognize Him. We know it happened with Mary at the sepulcher as she turned and talked to a man who she thought was the gardener until until He said Mary and she knew it was Christ. It was the same on the road to Emmaus as the two disciples were walking and Jesus Christ expounded to them out of the Old Testament all of the things concerning Him. And immediately at the end, they knew who it was and He disappeared out of their sight and they said, did not our heart burn within us as He expounded, as He told us, as He taught us the, the, the meaning of the Gospel? He was there, they just didn't recognize Him. And here we see again this instance. How do we explain this? What's going on here? It seems unlikely that Jesus actually changed his appearance. Jesus is a man in a human body and now a resurrected body. We see no record of Jesus changing shape or altering physical appearance during his incarnation following um, his birth. However, we know that Jesus is and was and always will be God. And God is able, according to the testimony of all scripture, to affect a human's ability to properly perceive. I told you in Sunday school, I was reading in Amos last night. And God told the people of Israel in particular, the northern tribe in Amos 5, that He was going to judge them for their rejection of Him by giving them a famine of the hearing of the Word of God. It's not that the Word of God would not be accessible. It's not that they wouldn't have synagogues anymore. It's not that they wouldn't read the scrolls. It's not that they wouldn't have the man sit in Moses' seat and expound unto them the, the law and the, and the prophets. It's that they would have a famine of the hearing, an inability to perceive the Word of God as a just judgment for their rejection of God's revelation. We know that God is able to harden the hearts of men, confirming them in their decisions. We know from Romans, we know from um, back in Exodus, that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, that Pharaoh had hardened his heart against God, and that God had confirmed him in his decision by hardening Pharaoh's heart. We know that God is able to blind men's minds, keeping them from properly understanding things. 
We know that God has done this to Israel. That He has blinded the eyes of Israel, Romans 9, 10, and 11 tells us, in part, so that the Gentiles could come in. And so, Israel's blindness is happening in part for your blessing. And Paul would go on to say, if the setting aside of Israel, setting aside of God's chosen people, brings this much glory to God, how much more when He restores His people will there be tremendous glory as He restores the nation of Israel. And so God is able to affect the perception of a man. And it seems here that God altered the perception of Mary and of these disciples in order that they would not immediately recognize Him. Such was the case in verse 4. Well, Jesus spoke to the men out of the boat in verse 5. He said, Children, have ye any meat? They answered Him, No. The word meat is what we call in theological terms a hapax legomenon. You don't have to know that term. If you didn't hear that term your entire life, it wouldn't be a problem. But all it means is that this is the only time in the Bible that this Greek word is found. Not in the English, but in the Greek. This is the only time this word is used. It speaks of something that would accompany bread, oftentimes speaking of the meat that would accompany a meal. The disciples said, no, we have no meat. He tells them in verse 6 to cast their net on the right side of the ship. And he says, ye shall find. So they did. And when their net entered the water, the scriptures tell us so many fish swam into it that they were not able to draw it back into the boat. They throw their net over the right side of the boat and there are so many fish in it that they can't drag it up into the boat. They're going to have to tow the net into land. There's so many fish in this net. This experience has happened before. It's reminiscent of something that happened at the beginning of Jesus Christ's ministry. Way back in Luke chapter 5, verses 4-7, through 7, we see the account. Jesus, the men have been fishing all night. This is before their call. Jesus calls to Simon, and He tells him to throw out his net on the other side of the boat. Simon does so. And the Scriptures tell us that they caught so many fish that the boat began to sink. And at the end of the account, in Luke chapter 5, verse 10, Peter falls on his face before Christ, and Jesus Christ says this to Peter, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. He says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Perhaps that was the point. Now, there's a lot of dots that we could and should connect here between these two passages, but we also need to be careful. We're going to, in a few weeks, begin in Sunday school a series on biblical interpretation. And what we need to understand is that John was writing the epistle of John, and he gave everything in the epistle of John that was necessary for the person reading the epistle of John to understand his point. We memorized his point this month. We'll quote it again here in a little bit. We see it in John 20, verses 30 and 31, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. That's the whole point of the book of John, that we would understand the word of God and that we would believe on his name. However, we also understand that the entirety of Scripture is written by God. God, Timothy tells us, inspired the Scriptures. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 
And so if all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, if it is all indeed God-breathed, that means that God knew when John was being written and the Holy Spirit was inspiring John to do so, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were there. We talked already when we talked about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, how much John left out of the crucifixion. And it seems likely that John would have anticipated Matthew, Mark, or Luke's Gospel to the extent that if they really wanted a historical account of what happened on that day, they could go to Luke. But John was going to only choose those events in his Gospel that pointed to belief. Because that was his point. And so we need to recognize that John did not give us the account of Peter's first fishing experience. But we also do need to understand that the entire Scripture, Scripture is the best commentary on itself, and that all of Scripture works in harmony. It does not contradict. It is inspired. It is preserved. It is infallible. It is inerrant. And so we can use Luke to understand more of what's happening in John. That being said, Peter had been told by Jesus Christ some three years earlier that his days of fishing were over. Jesus had told Peter, from henceforth, you will fish men. You will become a fisher of men. Peter would still be fishing. He'd still be laboring. He would still be casting. But men would now be his focus. And here he is again in his boat. Fishing fish. Instead of fishing men. This is going to be a great contrast with which Jesus Christ is going to impress upon the hearts of Peter and the disciples that their days will be spent doing something far more profitable than fishing for fish. And just like with fishing, what a tremendous example here. As Jesus Christ shows Peter that he's responsible to cast the net of the gospel far and wide. He is responsible to obey the commandment of God in casting the net, but you know the fish are going to come in at Jesus Christ's command. So too it is with us as ministers, right? We are responsible to tell. We are responsible to share the gospel in word and in deed. We are responsible to be the messengers of the gospel, but it's the Holy Spirit that convicts the hearts of men. And so we are indeed, as Peter was, fisher of men. Jesus' question becomes our first point this morning. The disciples labored all night for fish. No doubt they used all of their skill. No doubt they used various tactics. The best fishing spots, the best time of day, the moon was just right. Why didn't the fish come? They did it all without avail. But when they obeyed the command of Jesus Christ in faith and cast their net on the other side, the right side, the fish were so numerous they couldn't even get it back into the boat. The account is reminiscent of what we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 6 and 7, Paul says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. When Jesus first appeared to the ten disciples in the upper room in John 20, 21, he said this, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, so send I you. They knew full well what their work was, but they knew as well that they were inadequate to get the job done. He had told them in John 14, verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I shall do, excuse me, that I do, shall he do also, 
and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. So Jesus Christ had promised them that they would do great works. Jesus Christ had sent them. Jesus Christ had told them that he would be with them, but they didn't feel any sort of ability. They didn't even know what to do. What a burden. How could they possibly live up to the expectation of doing greater works than the Savior? And then they go fishing. And Jesus Christ reminds them that it's not their ability that is going to catch fish, much less their ability that's going to catch men. It's God in them. It's God through them. Maybe the thing that has kept you away from full surrender to the call of God upon your life, maybe the thing that's kept you from fully surrendering and yielding to God is the fear of your own inability. Maybe you say, I just can't do it. I can't share the gospel with my neighbors. I can't share the gospel with my coworkers. I can't share the gospel with my schoolmates. I just can't do that. I don't have the ability. Well, that's good. Because when you don't have the ability, that gives God the ability to work through you. Or, you know, perhaps it's the other direction. Maybe you are so caught up in how capable you are that you're in the driver's seat. And you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to bear fruit through you because you're too busy trying to bear fruit yourself. You're so busy trying to produce the fruit of the Spirit that the fruit of the Spirit can't be manifested in you through the Spirit. This is a tough one for pastors sometimes. I get so busy trying to make my congregation godly that I forget that it's God that makes the congregation godly. We get so busy making ministry happen that we forget that it's God that ministers to the hearts of men through us. We get so nervous to play our instrument because we're afraid we're going to mess up that we forget that it's not about what people think about how good I am on my trumpet. It's not about if I hit every note right. Yes, we want to do things decently. Yes, we want to do things orderly. Yes, we want to do things to the glory of God. But it's not about how good it sounds coming out of that instrument. It's about how good it sounds in the ears of God and what it does in the heart of God's people. Is it your ability that's hindering you from yielding all, from being everything that God would have you to be? When the fish swam into the net, John immediately said to Peter in verse 7, it is the Lord. He knew. We don't know how he knew, but he knew. Simon, hearing that Jesus was the man on the shore, he immediately swam over to meet him. The other disciples were perhaps a little less impetuous. According to verse 8, they stayed in the boat with the fish. They drug the net, net towed the net into shore. When they got into to the land, a fire was already lit. The fish were already cooking. What fish? Well, the fish that Jesus Christ provided for them. So He didn't need their fish. He provided them fish, but He didn't need their fish. Jesus commands them in verse 10 to bring the fish, which they counted out to be 153. However, the net was not broken. It should have been broken apparently, but it wasn't. He then tells them in verse 12 to come and dine. Come with me, fellowship with me, and dine with me. They knew it was Jesus. They had no question about that, and they dined with Him. According to verse 14, this was the third time Jesus had showed Himself to the disciples. During this time together, Jesus took time to focus in on Peter. And He asks him some questions that are going to form our second point. And our final point for this morning, our other two points will be this evening. 
as we continue to ask the question, what is keeping you from completely yielding yourself to God, from completely giving yourself to the call of God upon your life, or to the expectations of God upon your life, or even to simply sanctified holy living, maybe it isn't your ability or even your inability that's keeping you from fully yielding. Maybe it's instead, and I think perhaps this would be more the case with many of us in this room, your priorities. Maybe it's your priorities that are keeping you from fully yielding to God. This is found in verses 15 through 17. Look at it with me. So when they had dined, Jesus saith unto Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he saith unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Peter and the other six men had easily slipped back into a lifestyle with which they were familiar, fishing. They knew this lifestyle and furthermore, it would seem that they truly did enjoy. They loved this lifestyle. I was talking with my wife's grandfather a couple of weeks ago. They just left this past Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, uh, to head back down to Georgia. They had been up in Bemidji for several weeks and stopped by on the way up and on the way back. Well, when they stopped by on the way up, um, got to speak with my wife's grandfather for a little bit, and he was talking about his time farming. He grew up, and they weren't exactly a farm family, but he did grow up on a farm, And his heart was on the farm. As he talked with me about, uh, he was the designated rat killer with his little 22, and uh, as he talked to me about going and and picking the corn off the stalks and all of these various things that he did on the farm, he said his heart is still on the farm. The old adage, I suppose, goes, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. Maybe it was a bit like this for these seven men. They were fishermen. They'd grown up around this sea, the Sea of Tiberias, it's called in John. It's also known as the Sea of Galilee. It's the same sea. They'd grown up around this sea. They'd lived on this sea. It had been their livelihood. It had been their provision. It had been their food. It had been everything to them. The storms had come because the Sea of Galilee had storms. Everything about their lives had revolved around this sea. Yet they had followed Jesus. And when they followed Jesus, they left their vocation. They dropped their nets. They left their boats. And they followed. But you know, they were still fishermen. And the question that Jesus is asking Peter here is not about what he is or what he loves. He's not saying, Peter, do you still love fishing? Of course he still loves fishing. Peter, are you still a fisherman? Well, yes, he is. He's not going to get that taken out of him. But the question here is not about what he loves, but what he loves more. And who he is going to become. He's a fisherman and he loves to fish. But what does he love more? What is he going to become? Does he love Christ more than these? And that's what he says in verse 15. Simon Peter 
Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Do you love me more than these things? Do you love me more than these nets? Do you love me more than these boats? Do you love me more than these fish? Do you love me even more than these men? You read various people. Some will say that they were, he was asking Peter about the fish. Some were saying Peter was being asked about his vocation. Some were saying Peter was being asked about the disciples. It doesn't matter. Do you love me more than anything? Do you love me more than anything you can place your eyes on here? The Sea of Galilee, those nets, those fish that you just caught. All 153 of them. Do you love me more than these disciples that are standing around you that you have ministered with and lived with for the past three years of your life? Do you love me more than these? Peter answers in verse 15. Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee, to which Jesus Christ says, in a literal rendering, feed my lambs. At some point, Jesus asks Peter a second time, Lovest thou me? Verse 16. Peter says, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus says, Well then, pastor, feed, shepherd, my sheep. The word there, feed, is the word that literally means pastor or shepherd in the Scriptures. Again, a third time, Jesus asks him, Lovest thou me? This time the Scriptures tell us Peter was extremely sorrowful, grieved. See, Peter knew what this was about. It was about the three times that Peter had denied Jesus Christ on the night of his crucifixion. It was a question about Peter's priorities. Did Peter really love Jesus more than fishing? Did Peter really love Jesus more than a quiet, comfortable life? Did Peter really love Jesus more than his reputation as he stood around a fire barrel and there were soldiers all around him and the little girl said, aren't you one of those disciples? Did Peter really love Jesus more than his very life? That's the question Jesus Christ is asking here. Peter's grief gives way to a response in verse 17. And he says, Lord, you know more than I do. You know better than I do. You know all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus again responds, feed my sheep. Three questions. All of them regarding priorities. Three answers. And in this way, we see Jesus Christ giving a very public restoration of Peter. An announcement that Peter is still indeed called by Jesus Christ to be a part of this ministry. That's what Jesus is doing here. Three denials, three questions, public restoration among the disciples of Peter to service. And as we close this morning, I would ask the same question of each of us in this room today. You know, maybe it isn't your inability or your trust in your own ability that's keeping you from serving God with everything. That's keeping you from yielding your very life into service to God. Maybe what's in the way is your love for everything else that's around you. Maybe you would be willing to share the gospel, but your love of your reputation and your friends and peace among your family is more important to you than the commission of Jesus Christ. Maybe you would go to the mission field, but your love of the comforts of home and family and those elements of familiarity are worth more to you 
than that call. Maybe you would come to church more often. Maybe you would be a part of more church activities, but you love sleep too much. Or your football games are too important to you. Or your time is too valuable to spend it at church. We want to serve God. But you know, when we get saved, the Scriptures say old things are passed away, all things are become new. We have a renewing of our mind. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We have new priorities, but it doesn't change the fact that we were once fishermen. When I gave everything to God my sophomore year in college, I was already a believer, but I hadn't died to self. I was a computer scientist through and through. I finished my degree. I have a degree in computer science. That part of me hasn't left me. I can sit on a computer and just fiddle with things and change operating systems and open it up and switch out fans and jumpers. I can do that all day. I love it. But Jesus Christ looks at Pastor Wickler and He says, Pastor Wickler, lovest thou me more than these? Could your time be better spent telling someone about the Gospel of Jesus Christ, studying the Word of God, doing something for me, rather than switching cables in a plastic and metal box? Lovest thou me more than these? We want to serve God but we slip back into our former lifestyle. Slipping into that comfortable pair of shoes that's been around for years, but it's worn, dogged. But you know, God has not called us necessarily to comfort. Comfort's not a bad thing. But God has called us to obedience. We know the will of God from the Word of God. We know that we are supposed to Pray without ceasing. We know that we are supposed to give the gospel to every creature. We know that we are to be making disciples. We know that we are supposed to be training our children in the way that they should go. We know that we are supposed to be avoiding, rejecting the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. We know that we are supposed to be thinking upon those things which are virtuous and peaceable and lovely and of good report, praiseworthy. We know it. It's in the Word of God. The question is, lovest thou me more than these? Do you love me more than those things that are keeping you away from obedience to the Word of God? What separates Christians that are actively and earnestly making a difference for God in this world from those who are not is not their abilities. It's not their talents. It's not their training. It's not their age, young people. It's not their gender not anything physical. What is separating the effective Christian from the ineffective Christian in this life is sacrifice. Is a willingness on your part to yield that which doesn't matter for that which matters for all eternity. It's Jim Elliot who said, He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. May God help us this morning to be men and women without excuse. When Jesus Christ confronts us through His Word and says, Lovest thou me more than these? And He puts His finger upon that upon the thing in your life that is keeping you from taking it to the next level. That is keeping you from being everything that God would have you to be. 
that is keeping you from being the salt and the light in this area that God has called you to be, when He pinpoints it, and He says, Lovest thou me more than these? Are you able to say, Lord, you know that I love you? Or do you say, well, no. In fact, I don't love you more than this. In fact, I'm not willing to give up that for you. Search me, O God, the psalmist said. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. 